HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host, Erica Whites. So, you know how I love me some Little House on the Prairie, right? You've listened to me ramble on many, many, many times about Laura and Ma and Pa and their lives on the prairie and their trials and triumphs and blah, 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 right? Remember? Yeah, 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 you're saying, here she goes again with the Little House on the Prairie crap. Enough already. Stop. But wait, wait, wait. I'm not. I'm not talking about that today. That's not what the show is all about, okay? I'm not talking about Little House on the Prairie. So just wait. Are you already reaching over to your radio and changing the station? Because don't, okay? Well, I mean, you wouldn't be reaching over to your radio and changing the station because this is the internet, not radio. But in my mind, you're all sitting around the big wooden radio console in your family parlor, knitting and listening raptly as a family huddled around the box just because there's this magical voice coming out of it. And everybody's in awe, you know, right after listening to Roosevelt's latest fireside chat, maybe, or maybe you're listening to your curvy beige Bakelite radio perched atop your refrigerator in your pink kitchen as you make like creamed crab on toast or some other really bland mid-century era meal. I don't know. Or maybe it's that little pocket transistor model that your grandpa gave you, the purple one that your sister stuck the little groovy peace sign sticker on and you carry it around and you listen to tinny AM top 40 radio on because there's really nothing good on TV this afternoon except maybe the 430 movie. But you've seen Ben-Hur a hundred times and there's nothing else on until seven o'clock. OK, sorry, sorry. I'm done with that nostalgia tripping. That's it's not where I'm going today. But let me at least have my radio fantasy 
and not think that this is just one of a million other podcasts that you can just flitter and float through in our collective ADD media overloaded haze. Like Radio Tinder. Just keep swiping right for me, okay? Now, I'm sorry. I just, you know, I just love radio. I love it. I love radio. And I kind of wish that my voice was coming out of something stylish and retro and made as an object to be looked at and appreciated for its quality and long-term usefulness. The radio, not my voice. Not like coming out of like a little iPhone 5. Not something that obsolesces in three to five years. Something that lasts. Something with substance. A useful, permanent object. I mean, I guess, sure, you know, the podcast will be there forever on some server somewhere in the cloud or in Silicon Valley. I don't know where. Where are servers? Where do they live? But what if the grid goes down? Or what if the servers crash and blow up? What if there's that sunspot they keep talking about and it's just going to blast everything electronic to bits? Then what? What happens to me? Maybe I should take all 240 combined episodes of my two shows and I should have them pressed onto vinyl and stored in some kind of like climate-controlled vault somewhere, like the Beatles' master recordings. Should I do that? So that in 300 years, some historian of the 21st century can dig them up and listen to them and wonder how we even survived as a species, considering what we were eating in the era that she's studying. Maybe my show will be the, the quintessential relic or record of what people ate in the early 21st century. I don't know. Maybe these shows can be the little house on the prairie of their day, the historical documents of our time. Like Laura Ingalls Wilder's were of hers. I know, I said I wasn't talking about her. But, you know, someone's got to write it all down, right? So why not me? I could write a totally unbiased, <laughs> clinically detached <laughs> look at the eating habits of the late 20th century and early 21st century Americans. I think I'm going to do it. All right. I'm going to do it. Anybody know a good literary agent? Put them in touch with me. Now, I know, you know, that this won't be another show about Little House on the Prairie. I know you know that because seriously, enough is enough about that. And I know that you aren't doing the podcast equivalent right now of swiping left, right? We're still friends, aren't we? Even though I have no idea what Snapchat is really useful for and I keep forgetting to use my Instagram account, we're still, we're still buds, right? We're still together. And the only reason I'm bringing up Little House on the Prairie at all, the only reason is because I was thinking about Applehead dolls the other day. That's how my mind works. Applehead dolls, Little House on the Prairie, Applehead dolls. Because it is apple season, after all. We are in apple season, especially now we've had a frost here in the Northeast. We even had a little snow and all the summer stuff <clears throat> dead, like those last tomatoes, corn, peach, forget it, dead, frozen. It's all about the apples and the kale now. And so since it's apple season, don't you always think of Applehead dolls every year when it's apple season? No? Really? Come on. Look on Pinterest. I bet there's like a hundred pages of pictures of Applehead dolls. There's probably a Tumblr out there about Applehead dolls. Not that I would remember to look at it. Okay, so wait a minute. What's an Applehead doll? Is that what you're saying as you reach over to change the channel on your wooden console Philips radio? No? 
What's an Applehead doll? Well, where did you grow up? Come on. Back in colonial and early American, and yes, Laura Ingalls' time, which was, I guess, during the age of expansion, not colonial. The pioneer days. Little girls and boys, I suppose, and ma's and pa's, would take a spare apple. Although, in my mind, there was never a spare apple because food was precious. But there were spare apples. They'd take a spare apple. And you'd peel the apple, and then you would take a knife, and you would carve a face into the apple, like a very pronounced face into the apple. And then you would stick a wire into it or something so that you could hang it. And you would hang the apple up in a warm, dry place, like the attic of a wooden cabin that was heated with a fire. You'd hang it up in the eaves or in the attic for, you know, a month or two. Until it dehydrated and it shriveled and it shrunk up like a dried apple, but a whole one with a face cut into it. And hopefully it didn't get all moldy either, but probably not because you kept that wood fire going all day and it was pretty dry in there. Now, when it was fully dried up, completely dehydrated, it would uncannily resemble a wrinkled up old person's face. Usually a woman's face because the men back then... They tended to drop dead in the fields by age 50, so no one really knew what a really old man looked like. But the women would live, oh, on at least until, God, 60. And they would be apple, doll-faced, wrinkly, and shriveled up, too, by then because, you know, no sunscreen. So the dolls were generally resembling women. And then they would take these apple heads, these shriveled-up apple heads, and they would stick them onto a body made of two Sticks or two pieces of wood lashed together, much like Jesus on the cross. They would hang the head on top. And then they would take those two lashed together cross sticks. And if they were really, really crafty, they would then sort of upholster them with rags or cotton or something to form like a body shape on them. And then if they were really, really, really crafty or just bored out of their gourds since radio wouldn't be invented for another 75 years and there was no podcasting yet... They would sew little dresses for the dolls to wear, too. And they'd put them on their little dolls. And then they would have hours and hours and hours of long, cold, dark wintertime fun playing with the 19th century version of Barbie. Unless, of course, the rats got to her and ate her face off first, which I'm sure happened. Because life was a little more raw back then. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know if rats eat the face off of Barbie now. She's made out of plastic. Maybe New York City rats. No, they eat pizza. So myself, me, being a fan of all things colonial and early American and Laura Ingalls back then. Now I'm a fan of all things mid-century. I've changed. But back then, due to living in a colonial era town, which I've talked about, and participating in bicentennial festivities which I've talked about, where we all dressed up and reenacted crafts and activities from the era, like rolling big hoops with sticks and playing with dried fruit, as I've talked about. I made many an apple-headed doll in my youth. We used to go apple picking every fall. There were a few spare apples around, and I had a whole array of apple-headed dolls in the works. Because I just liked the way that those apples dried up and turned into faces, all shrivelly and crinkled. It was actually amazing. You could, if you were a good carver, as I was and still am, you could really exaggerate the features by carving them deeply into the apple. And then as they dried, the chin and the nose would really pop and then droop 
like a witch's face or sort of like my grandpa Joey's face. Now, being only like eight or nine years old at the time, I had the smugness that comes with being a smooth-faced young child, and I never gave a thought to the fact that I, too, one day would start to see my once flawlessly unwrinkled face of a child start to give way and resemble an old Cortland apple left for dead in my attic. But it's happening. Yes, it's happening. My rosy apple cheeks of youth are starting to fade and I'm starting to see lines forming across my forehead and little crinkles around my eyes and I know my apple-headed days are upon me. But it's okay. It's fine. I can deal with it. I accept it, sort of. I look pretty good for my age. I think mostly because I never had any kids. And judging by all the people I know in my life who have kids, it ages you rapidly. It ages you worse than smoking two packs of unfiltered camels a day, I think. But now that I'm acting and I'm a lifestyle model, uh really, I am a lifestyle model, I'm starting to get more and more calls to audition for things like menopause drug ads and a lot fewer calls for auditions for things like, I don't know, really cool apps. But I really don't want to linger on the subject too long because, look, we all get old. We all age. It happens, and you can accept it, or you can fight it and look like Meg Ryan. And then you die anyway, so, you know, that's the end. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about Applehead dolls and aging. We'll be right back. And today's break song is called Late Nights by Keto. We'll be right back. In L. Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Watts, your host. So why am I talking about all of this today? Well, first of all, a few weeks ago, I watched the Maisel's, Maisley's, Maisel's brother, brothers, 
I think there's only one brother left. Documentary. You know them? They made a bunch of documentaries. They made Grey Gardens. The documentary they made about Iris Apfel. Do you know who Iris Apfel is? Jack, do you know who Iris Apfel is? Is she that like old woman from New York, the fashion designer? Yes. Yeah, I saw the movie about her. It was yeah. unbelievable. On Netflix. So good. I know. It's what I'm about to talk about. Cool. Cool. Anyway, do you all know who Iris Apfel is? Okay, so she is this 90-ish year old New York City icon of fashion and style. She is like a fixture on the scene. She's she's a designer. She was an interior designer. She owned a, a fabric printing company. But she's more known now as this collector of outrageous clothing and jewelry. And she puts together these unbelievable complex outfits with all these sort of layered patterns. And she piles on these huge beads and bracelets and all this jewelry. And she has these gigantic round black glasses these giant signature glasses that she wears and then she has super short cropped silver platinum hair and she's a really like she's a living art piece like she curates her life and her look as art which is pretty amazing it's like how i would like to see myself but i would never put the energy or the effort into it but she's amazing looking iris apple so in this film about her she talks about how she realized, she was actually told by the woman who owned Lomans. Lomans is this discount designer fashion store in New York that is now out of business, but used to be like an institution. She was shopping at Lomans as a young woman, and Mrs. Loman beckoned her over and said to her, Look, honey, you're never going to be pretty. You're not pretty. You're never going to be pretty. But you have something more important. You have style. And style is more important. So Iris Apfel, being a wise woman, was like, you're right, I'm not pretty, but I have style. And so she, be, she worked that style and she basically created her life and her career around it. And she's now this like amazing icon of style. And she's 90 and she's never had any cosmetic work done to her face at all because she's completely opposed to it. She doesn't believe in it. She thinks you should just accept aging. And she's very, very wrinkled and looks, frankly, exactly like an apple-headed doll, which I was just talking about in the first segment. She has the same exaggerated chin and nose that I would so carefully work on with my little exacto knife when I would be carving those little fruit faces. And, um, yeah, did you remember also that I mentioned that her name is Iris Apfel, as in apple in German? coincidence uh, well yeah I mean it is a coincidence it's just a funny one but as I was watching the movie I remembered those apple headed dolls that's what reminded me of them from looking at her and I thought Iris Apfel is literally her own apple headed doll she's literally created her own apple headed dress up doll on herself how cool is that and as her own apple head head has aged her apple head face has aged and shriveled and changed she just keeps changing the jewelry and the clothes and the glasses and getting more and more outrageous on top of it and that's amazing i love that she's super cool and if that wasn't cool enough a few months ago before i saw the movie but i knew about her there was a casting call for something i don't remember what it was but they needed a woman my age to play a young iris apple type for an ad, and I got called in to audition for it. Now, I didn't get the job, 
Doesn't matter. Still, it was very cool to be associated with someone like that. The fact that I shop at Old Navy and accessorizing for me means like literally remembering to maybe put my watch on. Totally irrelevant. I just liked that they thought I looked like her minus 99% of the wrinkles. And as I told Ida, remember Ida? I've talked about Ida. My dear friend Ida, who's also older, but she won't say how old, and wrinkly too, not as wrinkly. I told her about the movie. And Ida knows about her. And she said, I'm not so sure how I feel about that crazy old woman and her ugly glasses. Which I thought was pretty funny because Ida actually has a lot of Iris Apfel in herself, too. They sort of have a similar shtick going on. And I see myself in Ida as I age, too. And both of those ladies give the big F you to aging or the fight against aging. And neither would ever consider having anything surgical or dyeing their hair. And they both wear and do whatever they want which is why I love them both. Although Ida ridiculously won't bare her arms in public because they're old and saggy, but we're working on that one. I'm trying to convince her that she's being ridiculous. We're going to take another short break when we come back more about aging and apples. Hi, this is Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. And you know, I remember my very first show, December 2009. It was a cold winter. And my first guest was William Grimes from the New York Times. Now, the one specific I had to tell him was, wear a hat, gloves, and a warm coat, because our studio had no heat. We had no heat in the winter. We had no air conditioning in the summertime. It was rough going, but we were a startup, and we had a good show, regardless of the fact that we could see our breath. So today, we still have hurdles to climb over, and the only way we can get there is with your help. So if you would please consider being a member and press that little beating heart button in the upper right-hand corner to donate. It's going to help us have heat and electricity, and air conditioning, and really good sound with really great guests. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about, what is it? The cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host. And I'm quite comfortable in here today, actually. We seem to have gotten the climate control down since then. Those long six years ago, I remember those days. Hmm. Anyway, I'm not here today to talk about apples, even though the first segment was about apples and the second segment was sort of about apples. I'm not here to talk about apples, even though it is apple season. And I usually do a show about fruit right about this time of year. And the actually, the apples are particularly good this year. Although, of course, I'm already nostalgic for the peaches and the summer stuff because I become nostalgic for something within seconds of it happening and passing. I 
can't help it. But I do like fall and winter fruit and vegetables, and I can live with them for the next, oh, you know, eight or nine months. Now, Iris and Ida, who I've been talking about, and who also coincidentally have the same initials, Iris Apfel and Ida Anastasia. How cool is that, right? They're both women who grew up in the pre-foodiness era, and they both grew up in New York City. They're both true lifelong New Yorkers, and they both followed their own paths and eschewed the norms of 20th century life. Neither one had kids, both pursued careers, and both are living well and strong into their eighth and ninth decades. Now, I'm not saying don't have kids, you'll live longer. I'm just saying this is what they did, and this is what I have chosen to do, too. And Ida is still open to new ideas about food constantly thinking about food, talking about food. And we cook and eat dinner together almost every Saturday night all summer up at Tiny Bungalow Town because that's where I know her from. And when I told her to stop doing things like eating low-fat yogurt and skim milk and to eat more butter and more bacon, she listened. She got it. And even in her 80s, she's a seeker of self-improvement. She's always trying to better herself, which I think is really funny because she's great just the way she is. But every summer she declares, this year I'm going to try and be a nicer person. And I just laugh and remind her that she says that every summer and that I've never seen any changes in her yet, having known her over a decade. Now, where am I going with this? What's all this talk of Iris and Ida all about? Well, lately I've been thinking a lot about feminism and food, women and food, sort of tying it, you know, with all this stuff about Planned Parenthood and this just sort of general attack on women in politics and in our culture, like all the advances we've made since the era of the suffragettes seem to be just being put in reverse and thrown back in our faces. And it's freaking me out. And I'm thinking about how that all integrates in with food, because food is so primal to our existence. And thinking a lot about food marketing aimed specifically at women, which most of it is, and how the food industry, along with the beauty and fashion industries, in order to market all their foodiness crap and beautiness crap and fashioniness crap, try as hard as they can to make women feel like shit or feel guilty or feel anxious about what they're eating or wearing or doing, but mostly about what they're eating. In order to sell the foodiness to us, they make us feel like shit so they they can then make us eat the shit basically. And in some cases, it's working. In a lot of cases, it's working. People buy the shit because they feel like shit. And then the shit makes them feel like even more shit. But in other ways, thankfully, it's all backfiring, which is great. And I've talked about this before because I did a whole episode a couple years ago on gender specific foodiness products, which still exists. And we all know that food marketing is really about women and kids. But things are changing. There's a little bit of a turnaround. But after my show two weeks ago about pink breast cancer donuts, I really started to get fired up. Even after I did the show, I couldn't let it go. Now, obviously, marketing pink dyed sugar and fake fat filled nutritionless crap to women and men to make them more aware of cancer is like selling Agent Orange to Vietnamese homeowners as a lawn fertilizer. It's basically taking the poison and selling it back to the people you've already poisoned, but putting a positive spin on it. Not that Vietnamese homeowners have lawns. There's not a lot of grass there. Maybe on their rice patties. Somebody once said, and I don't remember who it was. It could have been someone at Mad Men, but it could have been a real person, that advertising is nothing but selling people back their own shit. 
or in this case, selling people a disease-causing food, giving them the disease, then selling them that same disease-causing food back to remind them that they have the disease. As I like to say, a foodiness solution to a foodiness problem. And since the bulk of food advertising and marketing is aimed directly at women, as we're the ones who do most of the food purchasing in this country, the deviousness and underhandedness of the messaging gets worse and worse every year and more clever. Now, fantastically, ever since even, sorry, even in the three years since I've been doing my show, our awareness as a culture about our food and about foodiness has actually exploded. Thanks most likely to us at Heritage Radio Network. You're welcome. We did a lot of it. But the soda companies and the fast food companies are all starting to freak out because they're seeing their profits plummet. So they're digging in deeper. They're doubling down. They're spinning their messages in even more subtle, clever ways, coming up with products that are more subtle and clever and more designed to trick you into buying them because they're greenwashing them. They're making them foodiness healthy. Now, even Iris and Ida were not immune to the foodiness messaging in their day. Foodiness messaging goes way back to the early part of the 20th century when things like carnation canned evaporated milk was being touted as a sanitary, convenient substitute for breast milk. Right before formula was invented, which, as you know, formula is the original gateway foodiness product. Now, food is pleasure, food is sustenance, and food is life. We can't live without it. Food, water, air. What else do you need? Internet. Fast internet, preferably. But it's also guilt and it's shame and it's conflicting emotions and it's fear. But why? Who's doing that? Well, marketers and advertisers, of course. But who bears the brunt of it? Women. By far, women. Even Iris and Ida. My two icons, as living as you want to, not as others think you should, not as you think you should, not as you think others see you, but as you want to be seen. Even them. But if Foodiness Inc. had their way, their shrivelly, wrinkled, beautiful old faces would be replaced with shiny, smooth, pink-cheeked, apple-flavored gummy heads. All springy and plumped up, not a shrunken apple line in sight. Now, I would rather have those two women, wrinkly and real. The same way I would rather have my food, blemished, flawed, bruised, real, maybe going bad a little bit. I don't mind. Not made in a factory, not designed to stay fresh for six months or deliver synthetic vitamins to me because the real version of the food has been stripped out or with added omega-3s where they don't belong, like in cookies or orange juice. Not that I drink orange juice. I just want my food real. Women, and men too, all of us, we suffer enough messaging and bullshit throughout our lives. How about we just leave the food out of the game? Let's let it ripen. Let it age. Let it do what food does best. Nourish us. Feed us. Make us happy. No guilt. No confusion. No foodiness. We're out of time for this week. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eat food. Remember, if you don't want to eat shit, keep on listening to Let's Get Real. You can also check me out on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. Very occasionally on Instagram when I remember at Let's Get Real Show. Check out our Facebook page. And remember the new Heritage Radio Network website, heritageradionetwork.org. Click on that little pulsing red heart and become a member because we count on you, our listeners, 
to support us. Thanks, Jack. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.